0: This is Ron Friends, and you're listening to Superior Spider Talk.
1: Welcome to the Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdin, and I'm the editor of GrindMyReels.com.
2: And I'm Mark Giannacchio, the editor of the Chasing Amazing blog.
1: Thanks for joining us for the 14th episode of Superior Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture.
2: Episode 14 is going to be yet another one of our superior Spider-Talk and their Amazing Friends editions. This is one of the few podcasts we'll be releasing over the next week, which includes interviews from the Baltimore Comic-Con that Dan attended, and I did not, sadly, in early September. We're lucky to be able to speak to two influential Marvel creators who worked on Spider-Man comics over the years, Ron Friends and Paul Jenkins. In this episode, we'll share our overall experiences from the con, and then run the interview with artist Ron Friends. Ron has illustrated countless Spider-Man comics, but it's most notable for his run on Amazing Spider-Man starting with issue 252, the first black suit, and his time on Spider-Girl, both with the legendary Tom DeFalco.
1: If you want to skip to a specific section, just use the chapter selection arrows on your player. Also, if you hear this famous sound, please check your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. Of course, you can always email us comments or questions you have regarding this podcast to SuperiorSpiderTalk at gmail.com, and we'll read and answer them on the show. Also, don't you forget to go to our iTunes page and leave us a review. The only way we grow as a community is through your reviews.
2: Yeah, no pressure or anything. Also, don't forget to check our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash talk. Because it's actually a great place to keep up with us in between shows because, you know, we do nothing but hang out on Facebook all day. Right, Dan?
1: I don't know about you, but I do.
2: (laughs) Facebook, 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 not Friendster. Anyway, we often put up articles that we've written and other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe and how to get in touch with us.
1: Sing, it's another Comic-Con.
0: It's another ever-loving, blue-eyed Comic-Con. Time for the fates of the Hollywood big breasts to be decided by guys dressed like kick-ass. Zing! It's another Comic-Con.
2: But first, Dan, why don't you talk to us about your experience at Baltimore Comic-Con?
1: Well, I've been going to Baltimore Comic-Con for about a little over five years now. And I love it. It's one of the biggest cons, well, probably in America, but definitely on the East Coast. Probably right up there with New York Comic Con in in terms of size. And uh, it's just really just a wonderful event. And what I like particularly about it is it really focuses on comics over everything else. There's hardly a movie presence. I know Kevin Smith was there this year, but uh, even he also has a big tie to comics. So it's really refreshing to see something that's so full of um, so many artists both, like, new and old, um, you know, there to peddle their wares and talk comics with you. So I always have a really great time, and I even managed to pick up about four or five issues for my collection. I'm now down to seven issues for a complete collection.
2: Oh, what'd you end up grabbing, Dan?
1: Uh, I got number 28, number 38, um, number 17, and another one that I can't think of right now.
2: You know it's bad when you you, you you can't even remember like the great comics that you're taking off your list because <laughs> <laughs> it, it just sounds so mercenary if you can't remember that
1: yeah, I know I mean I have them I have them tucked away I all I know is that I have everything from um, issue twenty up now
2: that 's pretty good, and obviously thirty eight that last dick go that 's a big one,
1: yeah, yeah, that was a real big one for me uh,
2: seventeen second green goblin i i that that for the longest time was like the old issue that I had in my collection, like that was like you know because I keep all my my i have assigned I all my comics in different boxes. Uh, so there's the one to 100 box. There's the two, the the 101 to 200 box. And that issue 17 was at that front of that first box of mine for a good two three years for a while. So that kind of has a special place in my heart.
1: Yeah, I don't typically like to buy these things at cons. Um, you know, I get some wheeling and dealing going on, and uh, you know, that's fine. Um, but the prices are usually really high. So at Baltimore Comic Con, there's a lot of aisles of really high-end dealers. And their prices are pretty high for these books. But if you go digging around through some of the smaller guys who are just kind of there from little local stores, you can kind of get a little more lucky. If you but the selection is not as great. So yeah. uh, I, you know, I look through there and, and see what I can find. But for me, the real uh, reason to go to these things are, one, Meeting all of the artists and writers who are there. And Baltimore has a really impressive number of, of creators um, from a ton of gr- different books. And also the cosplay at Baltimore is out of this world. There's a big costume contest on Sunday that is truly amazing. It goes on for like three and a half hours because there are just so many people in costume that they can't even like file them by fast enough. And it's just a lot of fun to see every year.
2: And Dan, it sounds like you got some great commissions too while you were there, right?
1: Yeah, I, I really did. Well, I, I bought a, a, a page from uh, Invincible number 96, uh, which is another book that I love to read, um, and the art from Ryan Otley. And I got a page from him, but I also got this great commission from Alex Saviuk of Mary Jane and Peter Parker kissing in the famous upside-down kiss pose.
2: Now, did you just like randomly request that from him or did he – like like how did that happen?
1: Well, you know, I told him, like, you know, I, I collect, uh, you know, the works of art and commissions from all the Spider-Man artists that I that I meet. And I have a lot of Spider-Mans just littering my room. And, you know, I thought I I hadn't, you know, gotten a Mary Jane yet. And she's a character that I really enjoy. And I was trying to decide whether her or Green Goblin or whatever. But I know that Alex Saviuk's, uh Mary Jane is one of the best Mary Janes there is. And I said, "Well, why don't I get a Mary Jane?" He said, "Well, what's popular is uh, you know people like to get them kissing." And I was like, "Well, you know, how much would that be?" And you know, why not? So there I go. I got a Spider-Man Mary Jane kissing, and
2: uh, I, I love I know, it. I know for me, because you know Alex Zabiek, uh was did pencils on the very first issue of Amazing Spider-Man I ever purchased, uh, number two ninety-six. If if I ever got him to do a commission for me, I would probably have to do something with. Doc Ock panicked in the web with the giant spider reaching over him, or something. Some kind of homage to that cover, just because it's just to the personal connection. I'm, 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 in a weird way, super jealous that you got to you got to talk to Alex and, and get him to do that for you.
1: Yeah, it was really great. The guy before me got um, Spider-Man fighting Mysterio, and it was like a recreation of issue twelve's cover, oh, and nice. it was really awesome. It made me kind of jealous because I was like. Oh, man, maybe I should have gone with that. But you know what? I'm really happy with what I got. He put a lot of uh, flavor in it, and hopefully it'll be in the window below so you can see what it looks like. But there's all these great little details that um, you just don't get from a lot of other people doing commissions. So I really appreciated uh, uh, getting one from him.
2: And, Dan, you got to see some of our old friends from Connecticut Comic-Con, right? Did, did, how was, how was the, the, the second time around with some of them?
1: Yeah, all of them were great. Um, I gave them all gifts. I, I uh, <laughs> picked up some classic Gavazdin family cookie recipe, which is quite famous, and, and gave it around. I, and I handed uh, a package to the legendary Tom DeFalco, and he immediately retorted, Is it ticking? <laughs> and then I went to JMD and gave him the same package, and he said, is it ticking? In nice. which I, I had to tell him that Tom already made that joke, and, and he was like, well, you know, I guess Tom's faster than me. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody was really friendly. Uh, Mark's line was really long, so I had to keep it quick for him, but uh, it was nice to see some familiar faces again, and, um, and they were very gracious to, to, to see me, and they all said they loved the podcast and thought they turned out wonderfully. So that was really nice.
2: That's great. So anything anything else from Baltimore you want want to talk about before we get to Ron, or uh, is that kind of the long and the short of it?
1: Well, I mean, it's just a really great show, and if you guys are in the area, I cannot encourage you enough to come. It really is a great ton of fun. I mean, just, just to walk around, even if you're not buying anything, to just see the sights. And I know it's getting bigger every year, and it's nice to bring business into Baltimore, which is a city very close to my heart. But the real fun stuff had to do with Ron Friends and Paul Jenkins, who we're going to talk about uh, on each of the episodes. So, Leia, let's talk about uh, how I uh, got to dealing with Ron.
2: Spider Man and his amazing friends,
1: Iceman and Firestar.
2: Yeah, Ron's an old friend of yours, right?
1: Yeah, I met Ron two years ago um, at the con, um, and he gave me a free commission um, because he found out that I I understood Spider-Man so well. He, it was a comment he made because someone wanted him to do a commission, and we'll bring this up in the interview, uh, where he would, would write uh, great power, great responsibility on it, but you know, that's not the quote. The quote is, with great power must also come great responsibility. And it changes the whole meaning of it. And we got into a talk about this, and he was like, you know what? You get this. I'm going to give you a free commission. And it was probably the nicest thing that anybody has done at the con for me in all the years that I've been. And Ron uh, was exactly the same way this time. Uh, he is tr- the, truly one of the biggest Spider-Man fans I've ever met and pa- the nicest guy at any of the cons I've ever been to.
2: Yeah. And, you know, for the record, I sometimes do the with great power slash great responsibility as a shorthand. I I guess I I hope I'm not one of the fans that Ron thinks doesn't get it. (laughs) No,
1: no, I don't think so, because you'll hear him talk about it in the podcast because I I ask him about it. But, um, yeah, I don't think it was really a huge hang up for him. He just likes to discuss it because it does make a difference, I think.
2: So talk to me about the circumstances with this interview with Ron.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I've been emailing Ron back and forth about um, possibly getting an interview with him, and uh, and he's been very helpful. And so we kind of worked it out so that after his lunch with Sal Buscema and all the others who were, gonna, who were there, that uh, we would meet uh, and talk. What you're hearing is just like part of our conversation. We kind of hung out for the whole afternoon and – and, again, the nicest guy. And, and while you'll hear him doing some scratching in the background of this interview because he was working on his commissions. And so I got to watch him do a Captain America and a Spider Girl. And that guy is so talented and so diligent. He can do two things at once of, like, incredible quality. So uh, it was really, really fun to just spend time and get to know him a bit better. And, I can, you know, if you see Ron Friends at uh, any of these cons, like, Go and talk to him because he, he, is, he is the guy you go to the cons for.
2: Sounds good. So, why don't we hear from Ron?
1: Yeah, I can't wait. Hi, everybody. My name is Dan Gavazdin of Superior Spider Talk, and I'm joined today by Ron Friends. <laughs> Ron, uh, you spent a long time uh, working on The Amazing Spider-Man, all the Spider-Girl titles, Hobgoblin Lives, Revenge of the Green Goblin. It's a really uh, long career on the Spider-Man books. How many years altogether would you say you've been working on Spider-Man?
0: I have no idea. I've been in the industry 30 years, uh, man and boy. uh, And we were only on the Spider-Man title, Tom and I, together like two and a half years. Uh, because of Tom's philosophy of not doing the classic characters, the classic villains, and creating new villains, uh, we made quite a mess in those two years. I mean, Silver Sable, Puma, uh, characters like that were all created during that run. Um, but uh, and we worked on the the, the uh, Hobgoblin stuff and the black costume stuff. So I mean, there was a lot of that going on, and it was very active two and a half years, but it was two and a half years together. I mean, Tom came back on the book later and without me, which to this day hurts. Thanks for bringing it up, Dan. <laughs> well, but, uh, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, and, and the, my connection to the characters led to, you know, years later being asked to do uh, Hobgoblin Lives. They, they had a short list. I mean, if, if J.R. couldn't do it, they, they asked me, and J.R. couldn't do it. He was too busy at the time. So I was thrilled to come on that, because that was something Roger... Uh, who I, is a dear man and who I admire greatly, uh, he had been pitching that almost since day one with a, any editor that would listen. And, you know, a lot of editors, their attitude was, well, so much time has passed. Is that really something that anybody's all that interested in? And he finally found a team in Greenberg and Brevoort that were interested in seeing what he had to say about it and, and uh, having the original creator work on the character. So, I mean, that was great. The, uh, the Revenge of the Green Goblin thing, that was... Uh, that was supposed to go to Lee Weeks, and Lee Weeks had to back out at the eleventh hour. And Ralph Macchio and uh, I had done a lot of work for Ralph Macchio, and uh, he asked me to step in on that. And Pat think that because we shared studio space, and we had to do like an issue a week to still meet the deadline and everything. So that was that was just craziness. So yeah, my Spider-Man association has been kind of sporadic, but that I'm very proud and. And humbled to buy my two and a half years on the book because everybody still remembers it so fondly, which is incredible, considering it's on the other side of Todd McFarlane you know, who kind of upended the whole Apple cart and every you know, a lot of people think, before McFarlane and after McFarlane, you know, that kind of
1: thing. Yeah, well, I mean, McFarland's art is so distinct, but um, when you and Tom took over the book, there seemed to be a very intentional change in the visual style of the book, um, even back to uh, the days of Dicko, his nine-panel layouts. Was this an intentional change uh, Uh, Approach from you guys or um, like how would you describe your approach?
0: It was an intentional for me I I don't know if you'd call it an approach, but I've always been from the time I was a child very aware of the collaborative nature of comics, and I'm a huge comics fan and I see it as a I'm not looking to do my version of characters, okay? I see it as very much a legacy type of a situation where you're handling these characters that have been created and that I myself have loved for years and all that kind of stuff. And all I want to do is contribute to that. I want to. I want to keep the wheel turning and, and all that kind of stuff. So when I when I'm awarded a book like Spider-Man or Thor, I go back and read the run. And I came to the conclusion with Spider-Man and and the same with Thor, although this isn't a Thor podcast, so. Forget I ever said that. The Spider Man stuff is that, you know, you don't you can't really approach Spider Man without recognizing what Ditko contributed and what makes the you go back to that first appearance, what makes the character unique, what kicks makes the character different from any other character, what makes him special, what makes him cool, what makes, however you want to phrase it, it's what makes that what was that seed that made him incredibly unique? And when you do that with, you know, with an eye towards the uh, the visual, it, it for me it turns into studying Ditko, studying Kirby on Thor, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, those are incredible learning experiences. Understand, seeing and understanding how Ditko was composing panels and, and, and doing the panel grids and everything just kind of helped me get into that mind space. I mean, I, I, there's no way I can begin to touch the genius of a Ditko, I'm not even trying to suggest that. But you, you start to understand, it, it can't help but make me a better illustrator, you know, channeling the, the, the storytelling technique of a Ditko or the power of a Kirby or something like that. It's just a, it, For me, it's just it's school. You know, it's, it's uh, Comics 101 when you, when you pay attention to that kind of stuff and really look at it as what can I learn from this, what can I take from this, and everything. So, for Spider Man early on, the Ditko. The funny thing is, in light of what McFarland came along and did in the 90s and upended everything, when I did The Kid Who Collects Spider Man, and it was a, a simple story by Roger Stern that was just Spider-Man interacting with this kid, and and there wasn't a lot of superhero action to it or anything, Spider-Man had to be Spider-Man. You had to look at Spider-Man and know it was Spider-Man like that, or it didn't work. You you couldn't just be a guy standing there in a Spider-Man suit. It had to somehow be Spider-Man. For me, that meant going back to Ditko, and I looked at early Ditko, so I had the, the, the slender build, and some of the webbing was going the opposite direction, and all that, kind of like, like uh, Steve used to do in the early days, uh, Mr. Ditko used to do in the early days. And my editor was very uncomfortable with it. Uh, Danny Fingeroff had just taken over as editor of the Spider-Man titles, and he was very freaked out by it. And when you think about that in terms of what came later, it's, it's funny, but that was that was the age of people staying on model with Spider-Man. He was in an anima- he was in animation, and the Romita Spider-Man had pretty become pretty much become the model. But uh, when I did that, it was uh, you know it gave people some pause. And when you look at it now, I'm sure it looks like the corporate Spider-Man, you know that kind of thing. But uh, I yeah. had recently
1: reread that storyline, and it's one of my favorites. And looking at some of the, I even see Bagley's Spider-Man in there somewhere. And so it really does kind of come back to that like uh it kind of look i mean even though you established it you know uh, in that, in that thing, you can see a lot of other people's spider mans making appearance, and maybe everybody kind of comes. I that. think
0: you're seeing, yeah, I think you're seeing the elements that that even Mark Bagley took from from Ditko, because yeah. it was such an intrinsic part of Spider-Man. Sure.
1: So um, you're Peter Parker. Um, you know, everybody kind of has their kind of distinct Peter Parker, but uh, yours is kind of a blend. Uh, who do you draw from uh, inspiration from for your Peter Parker?
0: Uh, well, initially when I started on the book, my Peter Parker was very Ditko. It was, you know, I. I was playing with the looser hair, and I wasn't doing as much of the flat top haircut and everything. But it was very much based on on Ditko's. Um, and in fact, at the time, what was interesting is because I was so, so familiar with it, and was doing, you know, I was always looking at Ditko's profiles and his and his faces and everything. Uh, at the time, there was this young actor that people would ask me, and it's always it's always cool about comics is the comics, even though they're a visual medium, you ask any fan should play a particular character, you'll get as many different answers as there are fans who are looking at it. Because even though it's visual, it has that open-ended uh, you, you can project onto it. Sure. You know what I mean? So everybody had their own opinion about who should play Peter Parker, and some of them I went, oh yeah, I could see that. And other people I went, that's not even what he's supposed to look like. You know, that kind of thing. But for me, the, the one that I would mention quite often, and people would go, what the hell are you talking about? Tom Hanks. Yeah, it's almost perfect. Yeah, on Bosom Buddies, when he was playing comedy on Bosom Buddies, he needed a haircut because he had that big Q-chip haircut. But, I mean, I looked at him from the side and from the front, and I'm like, God, he'd be a terrific Peter Parker. And he could, it turns out, he was a fantastic dramatic actor. Yeah. And he could play the comedy in costume. Like, could you see him in a scene with Jameson in the office in costume, you know? And he would have been terrific. It would be hysterical. (laughs) And then years and years, decades later, I saw a picture of him after we were doing Spider Girl. I saw a picture of him standing with his wife, Rita Wilson, at an award show, and he had grown the beard. Uh, He had grown a beard for uh, Castaway. Yeah. And he had trimmed it to a goatee. So there's this picture of middle-aged Tom Hanks standing there next to the lovely Rita Wilson, his wife. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Pete and Mary Jane from (laughs) Spider-Girl. Did he lose his leg, too? How cool would that be? You know, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so that just reinforced this whole thing. Tom Hanks was a missed opportunity. He would have been a great Peter Parker.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, we recently interviewed uh, Tom DeFalco on the show, or the legendary
0: Tom the DeFalco. The legendary Tom DeFalco. I think it's contractual. You have to throw that in there.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, he credited you for a lot of the, what well, has he put it, good ideas. Uh, he,
0: does, uh, he does that uh, to uh, keep himself off the... Uh, <laughs> off the radar. He credits anybody who worked with him on any project with all the good ideas, and his you know, his were the bad ones that didn't get used.
1: So, uh, your work on the book, uh, did you guys do it in the true Marvel style, so to speak, sure uh, where, so. where uh, you plotted the book and he scripted it later?
0: Yes. Well, I didn't plot the book. I mean, we plotted it together. We did it Marvel style in the regards that we would discuss things on the phone. We would have these long... I mean, that was the origin of our, our, just our respect for each other and our uh, collaboration was we would have long conversations about who Peter Parker is, I mean who we see as the character, make sure we're on the same page with who this guy is and what he would do and what he wouldn't do and how he interacts with all his supporting cast and who they are in his life and all that kind of stuff. And out of that would come story ideas and, and uh, move. we'd be moving the story along and, and of course he came up with the great characters we talked about. He bought a set of animal cards you know, that you see advertised on late night television, and from that came Silver Sable, Black Fox, Puma, Oh, I don't know if there were any other ones in there or not, but just from that, it paid for itself because, you know, it was some ninety nine thing or something. But, um... It, so we, we would discuss the plot in depth, but he's... Tom is very much a craft guy, which probably came out in your interview with him, and he would type up a plot, you know, pages two through five and all this kind of stuff, and he always is open to collaboration and leaves things open for the artist to uh, to bring whatever he's bringing to the party to the party. But... Um, so it wasn't one of those things. Like, it wasn't like we we hear about with Ditko and Stan, you know, where Tom didn't know what he was going to get until the pages came in or anything. We were very much working as a team. But uh, he did. We did work plot script, and I did feel very uh, valued and, uh, and and respected, and uh, that my input was you know being considered and all that kind of stuff. and We didn't have any problems like that. Uh, you know, he always is amazed because I was such a fan that when I went pro and I was sitting there working on this stuff, I remember the first time that eyeliner noted something and suggested dialogue and he used it and things like that, you know. And he goes, how do you remember this stuff? I said, well, it meant a lot to me, Tom. The fact that it didn't to you, I can't speak to that, you know.
1: Uh, can you talk about... Um if it's true, the fact that your run on Amazing Spider-Man was initially meant to be short-term and then it seemingly expanded for a few years? Yes.
0: it uh, Originally, I was hired on Spider-Man to do, uh, I believe it was somewhere in the area of like six issues. The, the original plan was John Romita Jr. was going to leave Spider-Man for like six months and start X-Men. And then at some point was going to return and do both books. He was going to do X-Men and Spider-Man. He just needed some time to get ahead on the X-Men stuff. And... Um, so I was hired to do, like, six issues of Spider-Man. It, and, and in those days, it just happened to be the six issues that launched the black costume stuff and everything. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the story, as I heard it from Danny Fingeroth, is that at one point, Danny was happy with what Tom and I were doing. John Romita Jr. came in and was looking at the stuff and uh, was asking how things were going, and Danny said, it's it's going great, you know, I, I think they're really clicking and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I think Tom was hired permanently, I don't think he was part of the deal, but, you know, he would have been working with JR and and JR said, well, you sound like you're really happy with what they're doing, and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm ecstatic with what they're doing, but we're sticking by the deal, how are things going on X Men?" and he goes, well, they're going fine, everything's great, and Danny said, are you really, is this going to happen, are you going to come back after six months, and, and all that kind of stuff, because we'll stick with the deal, and and I was told that JR said, you sound really happy with what they're doing. Why don't you just let them have it? I mean, X- X-Men's more than any one person needs and all that kind of stuff. And when first time I met JR, I thanked him for my run because... But for his decision making it, it, it wouldn't have happened I would have done those six issues and been off and you know so in that way if you're a big jr fan i I cheated people out of out of a nice couple of years of jr books God knows. he's already done more spider-man comics than probably even his father at this point but yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a a wonderful act of, you know, kindness that I thanked him for, and he said, you're welcome. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing.
1: What's it like uh, getting a call uh, from your good friend Danny Fingeroth to work on Amazing Spider-Man, like just getting that call saying, you're going to be on the book?
0: I almost turned it down. Uh, When I was initially even offered the six issues, I I, I had just had a conversation with my, you know, my friends and cronies from art school and longtime friends, and was kind of beating my chest about the fact that, you know, they give these big high profile assignments to kids that just aren't ready. You know, if they offered me Spider-Man tomorrow, I'd turn it down. I'm not ready for Spider-Man, you know, that kind of thing. And then the call came, and it fried my circuits, and, and ultimately the only reason I took it, well, the, the, the reason that I, I mean, I had to take it, but the reason that I told myself was that at least I knew that I would give it 150%, that, that I loved the character so much. I'm a huge Spider-Man fan from way back. And that I knew if they would have given it to somebody who wouldn't have been as dedicated or, you know, whatever, I, I would have sat there and just beat myself up over the fact that I didn't take my opportunity. I had to take my shot. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for the way it worked out, if only for the fact that it was the beginning of my collaboration with uh, Tom DeFalco.
1: Uh, we've talked to a bunch of creators, and all of them have specifically mentioned, like you just said, that you're an enormous Spider-Man fan. Um, is he your favorite Marvel character? And if so, specifically, why? Why do you think that is?
0: My favorite Marvel character is tough to say. My, my I, I was born in 1960, so in in 68, 69 is when I was discovering Spider-Man from the old cartoon and syndication. The you know with the classic theme to the the comic books when I started uh, we used to trade comics with a uh, a kid up the block that uh, so I had a lot of coverless copies of Spider-Man and it just really I mean the character grabbed me for the same reason it grabs everybody because that's the character that you really are projecting yourself into you know because of the mask because of the fact that he's a young guy that doesn't have all the answers you know you really as a as a young fan. I was really connected to the character. And uh, I mean, I would have to say Spider Man is probably ultimately my favorite character, period. As much as I love Superman and, and uh, you know, was very honored to be on that book for a brief period of time. And Thor is just an incredible character that I enjoyed working on for seven years and enjoyed that movie incredibly because they nailed the Lee Kirby Thor, in my opinion, you know, that kind of thing. And the actor they chose, the casting was just. I couldn't believe that they were that successful with the cast, (laughs) but uh, you know, with Spider-Man, I—I'll be quite honest with you, because of my connection to the character, talking about you know people who should have played him and all that kind of stuff. As terrific as the first Spider-Man movie by Sam Raimi was, as you know, as much as Amazing Spider-Man: The Reboot is making money, and I thought that actor actually was—I liked him. In some ways, visually, I liked him better as Peter Parker than Tobey Maguire. But I still have not seen the Spider-Man movie that, as a fan, I would love to see. It just they not, just not haven't Spider-Man had... two. No, none of them. I mean, because it, it they just haven't. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'll say controversial things. These are just certainly just my opinions. Go for it. I thought they nailed the characters in the two Fantastic Four movies. Reed, Ben, Sue, and Johnny. Boom. Right. I mean, how Thor. Steve Rogers, all these characters. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. invented a new Tony Stark, which yeah. they've now adopted into the books. But I mean, as far as, as Steve Rogers, Thor, uh, and I thought the Fantastic Four, those characters. They, yeah, they screwed up Doctor Doom. You know, blah blah blah. But they just those characters—they're acting and moving and talking in front of you. And for one of the things, you know, being having having had the privilege of working on these books. When I'm listening in one of those movies, and when those characters say a line, and I go, damn, I wish I thought of that. God, that's good. I mean, in the first Fantastic Four, Ben says to Susie, Susie's saying, you know, Ben, we're all in this together. And he goes, Susie, look at me. Because I know, you know, and he's just talking about defending Reed and the way Reed thinks and everything. And he said, Susie, you have no idea what I would give to be invisible right now. And I'm like, oh my God, is that a line? You know and things <laughs> like that. There's lines in cap and Thor, and he just, oh man, boy, come to the, oh. But for Spider-Man, I can't believe that none of these major motion picture geniuses stand handed them on a silver platter. What's the one thing that when people are translating superheroes, they worry about? Why is he put on the tights? What's the deal with the tights? How do we make the tights work, right? Stan handed it to him on a silver platter. He did it because he was going to be on the Ed Sullivan show or, or America's Got Talent or David Letterman or whatever you want to update it as. And none of them have used that. Yeah. I mean, even when he fought the wrestler in the first movie, he was in some throw-together version of something. He created the costume to fight crime. That's always what they want to avoid. And and Stan gave it to them and they haven't used it. Especially yet. in this era of reality TV and YouTube. It blows my mind. I mean, I I would love to see a film where, you know, he he goes and auditions for America's Got Talent. He makes the cost his first version of the costume where he just like draws the webbing on with a Sharpie marker or whatever it is. You see beautiful costumes being made for by cosplayers every day. But he makes that version of the costume. He gets his agent, Max, at the wrestling thing. And Max is processing his money for him and stuff. They're doing appearances. As it says in the original origin of Spider-Man story, he became an overnight sensation. He made more than one appearance. As the money comes in, he upgrades his costume. And you can, if you want to do the die-cut webbing, do it then. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And there you go. I mean, it, it, but. That's just one of many things that I just wish they had grounded, kept Pete more grounded.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and not to get off, too off on the topic, but I, I, yeah, I think the origin has never been successfully handled in, in the city I mean, story. What,
0: what, what Raimi did write that just as I sat in the theater, I was so thrilled and, and so engaged, but I was a little outside of it, was when he sets everything up and the burglar runs past, and Pete's feeling vindictive because the guy ripped him off, the promoter ripped him off. And the promoter says, you could have stopped the guy. Why didn't you stop the guy? And he says, hey, you know, not my problem. He, he mocks the guy and says, not my problem. And the audience is with Pete at that moment. And you can hear the audience go, yeah. And just you're outside yourself because you're sitting there going, oh, my gosh, he did it. He pulled it off because the audience is emotionally connected to what Pete said right there, and the people that don't know what's coming up the road in a few minutes are going to be feeling it right along with the character. Sure. You can't ask for more than that. No yeah, way. and that was perfect, and and that's really you know the, the the key to that origin as much as I'm talking about some of these other things. You know,
1: um, as, talking about the origin, you and I uh, a couple years ago had a conversation um, about the classic line, with great power must also come great responsibility. And you were talking with uh, a fan who wanted you to write great power, great responsibility on one of their commissions, and you said you were upset how it's often quoted without the must also come part. And it bothers me as well, and and we kind of talked about it. And I wonder if you could illuminate to our listeners
0: the importance of this part of the line to you. Well, I think it changes the entire meaning of the, uh, I mean, w- the, the the fans who uh, who have heard the misquote over the years and have accepted the misquote are projecting something on it that the misquote isn't saying. The misquote says, with great power comes great responsibility. Okay. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, the world is full of people who have great power and abuse the shit out of it, pardon my French, and, and victimize other people. Okay, so... There is no adage to the idea that with great power comes great responsibility. That History has not shown that at all. So when people hear that and think it means, what they think it means, what they think it means is the original quote, with great power must also come great responsibility. Because Stan's original quote was that a, uh, a lean silent figure fades into the gathering night having learned... Uh, that in this world, with great power, must also come great responsibility. You have to bring the responsibility to the table. The power itself doesn't give you responsibility because if you're a conscienceless dick and you <laughs> abuse people, it doesn't. You know, I mean, if, if you if you have no sense of of honor or guilt or whatever, you know, great power doesn't make you responsible great power requires great responsibility so yeah I mean even the people who hear with great you know what they say with great power comes great responsibility what they're the definition there what they're hearing, what they're processing is, with great power, must also come great responsibility. Yeah. But they're misquoting it, and, and it, it's frustrating. But what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, it, it made it into the multi-million-dollar picture that way, and that's the way everybody's hearing it now. What are you going to do? Um, so
1: when we talk to uh, the legendary Tom DeFalco, <laughs> you have you have to include it. Um, he told us that during your run, you were building for the Hobgoblin to be revealed as Richard Fisk and uh, Roderick Kingsley as the. Yet there wasn't a lot of Richard Fisk in those issues to suggest him as a suspect. Is there truth to the rumors that Marvel Editorial or maybe Jim Owsley left a lot of the Fisk stuff on the cutting room floor? Um, and I'm wondering if maybe you could describe the environment around uh,
0: creating those issues. Uh, I, You know, a lot of that was happening in the office. Tom was in the office all the time. Uh, Jim Owsley was, you know, obviously was in the office. I was not. I was sitting in my... In my studio in Pittsburgh, kind of minding my own business on that stuff. Um, what I remember, and you know, it's not—it's not an accurate memory, because what I remember was that at one point uh, we had talked about doing a, uh, as Tom remembers, it was kind of a, 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 a what do you call it there—a a, a, a fake out, a a, a red herring was that it was going to be Ned Leeds. And what I remember about that is I love the idea of it being Ned Leeds. I love the idea of it being Ned Leeds and the reader finding out it was Ned Leeds before Pete found out it was Ned Leeds. You know, like there was tension between Ned and Betty and Pete, and so when his spider sense would sometimes go off when Ned was around, he's like, oh, man, what's going on here? You know, that kind of thing. And the readers know that Ned is the hog goblet, but Pete doesn't find out until a big... You know, a big turning point issue or something like that. Sure. But that was only something that Tom said at a meeting to. Because he was concerned about it getting out. That was in the days of the early fan press and everything.
1: Right. He mentioned that the fanzines were often around when he's he asked at The same. The memories
0: it. on that are all spotty, and uh, and some people are, uh, you know, aren't remembering it the same way Tom is. And quite frankly, I don't remember the specifics. But you know, I, I'm not going to argue with Tom's version of it because I don't have any memories of my own to that. Uh, you know, it's it's a shame, but we didn't know. You know, it's that. Mark Swayze line from Alter Ego, we didn't know we were making history. You know, His line is, we didn't know it was the golden age of comics. We didn't know this was something I'd be talking about 28 sure. years later with, with somebody. You know, So I don't have real distinct memories of it, but I do remember there was a lot of, I, we had the, the four books running at the time. When Jim Ousley came on, there was a lot of um, discussion and Disagreement about what the tone of the Spider-Man books were. What you know, he he came in and, and hired Peter David, and then they did the, the the Sin Eater stuff, and uh, you know there was a lot of books reacting to what were going on in other books. There was less communication between the books than there were when Danny Fingeroth was there, and uh, I mean I, I remember one thing I believe it was in two seventy five because there was a scene in and it was it was uh, Peter David's one of Peter David's first high profile professional gigs. And, and, of course, you know, Jim Owsley was very smart for giving him the shot because Peter David turned out to be Peter David, you know. Right. And nobody's arguing that point. But at the same time, there was a scene in the original Sin Eater that was kind of an important scene where Pete, is uh, Spider-Man, is fighting the Sin Eater, and Sin Eater fires a shotgun, and he jumps straight up, and there's people standing behind him they get shot. And a lot of us who had been working on the books for a while said, how the hell did that happen? I mean, that's just... We've never seen Pete make a mistake like that before. And as the scene played out, he became Spider-Man again. He became quippy Spider-Man as people were bleeding in the street. And that's an opportunity. That's, that's not, oh my God, how could he do that? We have to make sure that that... We have to tell a story where that was an android or something like that. We didn't want to do that. But in 275, there was an opportunity to have him talking to Mary Jane. About all this, you know, darkness that was coming into his life—that you know—isn't uh, stuff that necessarily you know, they weren't the kind of stories Tom and I might necessarily tell. But it was an opportunity to have Pete react to it for our readers, and to take a, a breath, and to have him actually say to Mary Jane, "You know, I fought this lunatic called the Sin Eater, and I screwed up, and I jumped straight up, and people died." And she goes, "Well, you can't blame yourself for that." And he goes, "That's not the worst part. The worst part is I started making jokes." I'm trading puns with a lunatic like Sin Eater while people are bleeding in the street. You know, we just had him come out and say it, and, and and it didn't, it didn't put us at odds with Pete. It didn't, it didn't try to say that oh that scene never happened. That's not our Peter Parker. Right. It it was an opportunity to have the character revisit it and say how he felt about it because obviously Pete's going to live that for the rest of his life. Right. And yeah, as yeah, far yeah, as I'm concerned, be... in Spider-Girl, when Pete wakes up with a cold sweat on his face, that's the kind of stuff he's dreaming about. You know, He's having nightmares yeah. about that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: Um, what was it like working with Roger Stern on uh, Hobgoblin lives so many years later um, and coming at it from the angle of introducing the Roger Kingsley brother angle, um, that Tom DeFalco told us he was so against. Um, did you feel odd going over this ground again so many years later?
0: I, I won't lie. I When I heard that they had, that he, he had finally found, I, I got a call from, like, Glenn, Glenn Greenberg or uh, uh, Tom Brevard or something, and they said, you know, we're, we're doing Hobgoblin lives. junior can't do it. You're on the short list. You know, it was either you or him. or you? Is this something you have time for? Is this something you're interested in? I said, Well, I absolutely am interested. I, but my, I'll be honest. My first reaction was, We're really going to do this finally, you know? And he says, Yeah. I said, Is it? Is it the same? Uh, is Roger returned to his original idea that it's the the, the twin? He goes, Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm going. Okay. You know, and I called Tom and I heard Tom's opinion about it all. He just thought it, too much time had passed and. There was no point in revisiting it and everything. My attitude from the very beginning was, you know, I I wasn't in direct conflict with Tom, but at the same time I was curious to see how Roger was going to handle it. And here's what happened. I get the plot, and I read the plot. And it's wonderfully structured. All those characters from that old run of books are reintroduced in a way that would not be confusing for somebody that didn't read the original stuff. All their relationships to each other in the first issue were all covered. You know, he did a; it was really tightly plotted. I just kind of came in and tried not to screw it up, and I thought it was incredibly effective. I, I, I said, Tom, in my opinion, Roger pulled it off. I mean, it's it's self-contained, it's well-told, it has action scenes in it. You know, I, I I had no problem with finding out that the real Hobgoblin had been out there letting. Uh, what's the character's name? Jack Lantern. You know, uh, letting him uh, Jason
1: McIndale. Yeah,
0: letting Massendale be the be the you know be the face of Hobgoblin for a while. That scene where he comes into the prison and gases everybody and, and kills Massendale and everything, I, I that <laughs> was very effective. I thought it was very cool. And uh, so no, I didn't have a problem with it. And uh, you know, it, there was the issue that Roger had never really had much of a chance. There were some. I'll be honest, when, when we originally, when we took over the book, and I said, you know, are we going to go with Roger's idea, and Roger's, I, you know, Tom kind of didn't give Roger's idea even at the time, he said, no, it's his evil twin. Now, Roger maintains that they're not twins. Uh, they're brothers, and they look very much alike, but they're not twins. I don't really, I mean, come on, Roger, <laughs> I love you dearly, I really do, and I respect the hell out of you, but... How are you going to fool people if you're not identical twins? If you're identical twins, it's a it's it's a hard sell. But one was bald and one was then. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, they have to be at least twins. Yeah, I uh, know. When we used them in Spider Girl, we made it very clear that they're at least twins, and that's how they were able to fool people. Uh, but you know, I mean, it is a shame that some of Roger's original intentions, you know, didn't get played out and all that. Because that's the thing. I mean, he left the book before he was able to really bring that home as a real clue. But the stuff that he says is in there, even as a fan, before I took over the book, I wasn't getting it. Yeah,
1: 250 has got like one page that hints that he has a brother and that he's not who you think he is. Well, yeah,
0: but he also, supposedly, if you watch scenes or scenes like... Where he pulls a gun on somebody, where he's acting more of a hard ass, and then there's scenes where he's more... Well, yeah, succinct. the
1: original interpretation yeah. of him, he's like, oh, it was yeah. Daniel all along? Yeah, or, it was yeah.
0: all that kind of stuff. And But as a fan, I w- I didn't pick it up. When, when Tom said... you know, How could you? When Tom, Tom said that the evil twin thing, you know, well, I'm going to give Roger his due. I mean, if it's in there, it's in there. Yeah. If he would have been able to play it through the way he wanted to, I'm sure it would have worked just fine, and I would have been like everybody else going, what? Wow, that's cool! You know, that kind of thing. But when Tom, you know, kind of threw it threw it out as, uh, oh, it's it's uh, Roderick Kingsley's evil twin, I went, where's that coming from? Because yeah. I didn't get it at the time. I who, was, is, who is Roderick Kingsley? I mean, I completely write it off to my own ignorance. You know, I I, I really don't hold Roger responsible for the fact that. A rockhead like me didn't pick up on his clues or sure. anything like that, but I enjoyed doing the the dynamic of the two brothers in Spider Girl. I mean, we, when we brought him back in Spider Girl, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that. It was my idea we were going to do a fashion story. I wanted to do something that involved high fashion, and we had Daniel Kingsley out there, so we used Daniel and kind of made him a, you know played him up the way he had always been written. Yeah, and uh, and we never really intended to do Roderick coming back. Uh, that was not our intention at the time. We did one flashback panel of, of Roderick as Hobgoblin in that Daniel story, and the drums started beating. The fans were sure we were, you know, they, they were so positive that we were foreshadowing the fact that Hobgoblin was... Here he comes. Dead. And we weren't. We just weren't. We had no intention of doing it, but then at one point, Spider-Girl was one of those books It was always on the bubble, and anytime an editor came along and, and inherited the book, they said, yeah, what can we do? What can we do to try to do something more high profile? What can we do to connect it a little bit more to the Spider-Man universe?" And and I had one of those phone calls with Tom, and Tom said, "You know, Molly's wondering what we can do to." And I said, "Tom, why don't screw it? Why don't we just do Hobgoblin and see if that brings up our numbers? You know, see if that brings some attention." Unfortunately, because <laughs> dead Hardcore Spider-Man fans. I talked to a lot of them at shows, and they're like, "Oh, I loved your run on Hobgoblin." I said, "Are you are you reading Spider Girl right now?" Well, that's not real continuity, is it? I'm going. What's real continuity? You loved our Hobgoblin stuff. It's Tom focus and Ron Friend's doing Hobgoblin. Give it a try. You might actually like it. In 80 years, what are we going to be doing with Spider-Man 2099? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, because it's he's you know we wrote him as a badass. We we wrote him as. Um, the biggest badass in the world from the 616 universe comes to uh, a Mayday Parker slightly more Mr. Rogers neighborhood type world and makes a mess I mean you know we did that those couple of pages where he, he took out Raptor and he took out uh, the Lady Hawks and he took out all these people and hung them on a fence you know to call out Spider Girl and all that kind of stuff and I was enjoying the heck out of it I, I enjoyed that
1: are there uh, any specific issues from your initial run that you're uh, specifically proud of, or under or you think that are underrated or underappreciated issues?
0: Um, underrated and underappreciated, absolutely not. Because I am here. We are. You know, we're sitting in a very nice hotel room in uh, Baltimore talking about them all these years later. So un- unappreciated, absolutely not. Some of my favorites, I you know, uh, are, are are personal uh, to me. Because usually they, they, because they, the germ of the idea might have been mine originally, and I might have pitched it to Defalco and things like that. Uh, sure. Whatever happened to Crusher Hogan was something that I pitched. Great story. Uh, because I always, you know, I was always wondered whatever happened to that guy. You know, that, we could do something with that. that. That's a story, right? Yeah. And Defalco and I started talking about. It. I loved what Tom did with it. What I really loved about it, though, is. Everybody knew that the, that issue was coming out, and it was the, the point of that issue was whatever happened to Crusher Hogan. So, the shot of Manslaughter Mosdale standing over Spider Man's unconscious body on the cover they, they assumed that was Crusher Hogan. He, he suddenly changed yeah, his race. He became race. a bad guy, and yeah. would, you know, well, you only see the back of his head. But yeah. yeah, his hands are brown. Yeah. So, uh, which is funny anyway, because uh, Manslaughter Marsdale was not supposed to be a black guy. In the pencils. He has a shaved head. Remember Bull from Night Court? Yeah. Uh, Richard uh, Maul. Richard Maul. He was, he was supposed to look like him. He was supposed to be a shaved-headed white guy because he had this surgery that deadened his nerve endings and yeah. all this stuff. And I got a call from uh, Joe Rubenstein, and he goes, what do you want me to do with the hair? Because I had just kind of indicated it like half a crosshatch or something. Yeah. He goes, what do you want me to do with his hair? And I said... Handle it however you see fit. I mean, I'm thinking of I it, mean, you know, you can even lay in a zip, a dot zip or something, because it's supposed to look like a shaped head. Sure. I said, so either that or a crosshatch or something like that, you know, any of that works. Uh, since I gave him carte blanche, uh, Joe Rubenstein put in black hair, black hair. And the hairline, and the whole, he used the hairline I gave him, but he put in a full head of hair. And the colorist at some point was in the office, because Joe was in the office a lot, and the colorist asked Joe, is this a black guy? And, and Joe went, of course it's a black guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Mars still became a black guy. Which is all well and good. That's fine. But uh, that was not my original intention. What was really the original funny. question, though? Oh, my favorite issues. That one, um, Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, I'm still very, very proud of. After of course. Um... There are those scenes in 275, uh, where Pete, we, we go to Flash, we go to the actual original origin as Pete goes into flashback about his origin, and he's talking to Mary Jane, and there was a scene that I pitched to Defalco, that the scene right after that where Mary Jane goes, wow, after all these years and knowing knowing you as long as I have, I never I never really knew about your origin before. Didn't know about the death of Uncle Ben and all that stuff. And Pete says, you never asked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've you've revealed that you know I'm Spider-Man, but you didn't want it to stop your party. You know, that's fine, whatever. Yeah, I remember that exact and he line. walks away from her, and he's standing on the platform. And Mary Jane walks over and takes his hand and says, I'm asking now. And then we go into the origin, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just a simple little character bit, but I thought you know, Pete would have some re- reaction, because just in the original plot that we had talked about was, you know, Mary Jane asks, how'd you become Spider-Man anyway? And he tells the origin. But, you know, Pete is hes so alone, and finding out that... I'm actually choking up talking about the character. <laughs> and it, it, the idea that Mary Jane revealed that she knew, and I don't know when Pete finally found out that she knew since day one, because that didn't come out till the graphic novel. You know, that kind of thing. Tom's attitude was kind of what we never really need to find out when she found out, but you know Jerry Conway and Alex Saviak decided, oh, it was that night that Uncle Ben got killed. She saw you know, him <laughs> from day one. Does know? that <laughs> fit with? Uh, uh, you... I don't know if they worried about that or not. To tell you the truth, sir, I, I really don't know what they checked as far as continuity, but uh, it works for me. You know, I don't care.
1: Do you feel like you uh, accomplished what you wanted to while you were on the title?
0: We didn't come in with uh, a, a big agenda or anything. Um, I. You know, again, the fact that we're we're talking about it all these years later, I'm very flattered and and very gratified by that. Um, I didn't come in with an attitude like, this is what I want to say about Peter Parker, or this is what I want to contribute. As I said, I see it as kind of a legacy gig. You know, you're handed the baton, trying not to wreck the car. You know, that kind of thing. I just mixed my metaphors there. You know, (laughs) I said in an interview one time, that the wheel was spinning fine. Spider-Man was in great shape. You know, there were... Sometimes it was spinning a little slower than others. But we were just coming off a period with Roger and uh, Roger Stern and John Arena Jr. I mean, the book was so, you know, it was going great. All we had to do was come on and try not to screw it up too bad. You know, and, and that's, we're not create. Our ambitions as creators are always to serve the character. They're not to make our mark on the character sure. or anything like that. It's always to tell the best Spider Man stories we can for as long as we're on the book. Believe me, we wanted to be on the book longer. I mean, there was a lot of that, all that behind the scenes crap that you read about on blogs and all that kind of stuff. And it was, you know, it was real and it affected how that all played out. But, you know, it. I'm I'm so thankful for the opportunity of the work on the character. I mean at some point, you know, I'd love to do another run on the character. I got to do it on Spider Girl and and you know, the thing that was great about Spider Girl was that it was a legacy title. I mean it was the type of title that we always had that attitude about Spider-Man himself, you know. Uh let's let's do it like a pilot. Let's do it like the the book was canceled when we left the title in the in the yeah. eighties. And now you know. Let's. What, I wonder what a Spider-Man relaunch would be like. You know, let's do his daughter. You know, that kind of thing. What's funny is that we had the opportunity to do that with Thunderstrike with the five-issue minis series of Kevin and Six One Six, and that was very much the same headspace we were in when we created Spider-Girl because we wanted it to be as much about Pete as, as especially that first story. If you go back and read What If One O Five. It's very much Pete's story. I mean, it's the origin of Meg in the costume and everything, but it's very much Pete dealing with the, uh, the goblin legacy and, uh, and Mayday kind of coming out of left field and handling it a little better than Pete's handling it.
1: So uh, what was it like to design Spider-Girl and to check in on Peter and MJ so far in the future?
0: Uh, it, was, it was great fun. Uh, once, when, when Tom called me and said, you know, we're going to do Spider-Girl, and I kind of ouched at the name, I mean, I remember at the time stupidly asking, well, is it Spider Woman? Any, nobody's using Spider Woman right now, are they? And that kind of ties into Pete as a teenager calling himself Spider Man. And he goes, yeah, but Spider Woman, you know, the reason it's, the name's not being used right now is that none of the Spider Women have ever caught. So the, the, the name kind of has the stink of death on it, which, you know, Bendis proved later for that, he beat that. But bottom line is, you know, he's just not a spider girl, and I certainly got used to the name. Um, but, you know, the, the big thing was to make it, to treat it like a pilot. Um, I mean, the ideas that we talked about, that we talked about before we did it, the ideas that are in there, if, you're, if you read the story, I love to this day. I love the fact that, unlike being, you know, may day far for the opposite of being the outcast, she is smart and athletic, and she has friends that are jocks and nerds, and neither the twain shall meet. And when she finds out about her heritage, when she finds out that, that her dad was Spider-Man, and she puts on the costume to try to help, she has found her sweet spot. She's, she's found a you know, an, an identity. She has found a way to be smart and athletic at the same time with nobody judging her for either one. You Because know, when she's with a jock friend, she has to deny her geekitude. And when she's with her geek friend, she has to deny her physicality and her jockiness. And as Spider Girl, it just all clicks that she's using it all. You know, there's nothing better, and uh, you know, so it was a lot of fun. But but again, it was a Pete story too, because you know, if you remember that story, Pete finds out that there's a Green a Green Goblin again. He's out of action with his with, with his uh, plastic leg, and so he goes to the Fantastic Four, and they're out of town. The Fantastic Five, he goes to the Avengers, and it's a new crew of kids that were younger than he was when Spider Man when he became Spider Man, and he doesn't know how to handle it, and he ends up meeting normie on on the brooklyn bridge packing you know that kind of thing i mean he was definitely looking at putting an end to this because if it was going to threaten his wife and kids he was going to do what he could about it you know and after all those
1: years of plucking spider-man heads off dolls
0: yeah yeah I mean that, it, that's the thing because that's that's what we were dealing with that's what we were coming out of yeah. you know, for all those years we were projecting from that place right so that's why he had the you know the the tattoos and very cape fear you know honor yeah. thy father, kill the spider tattoos and <laughs> and all that kind of stuff i mean i it was it was it was a pretty cool story and i to this day I look back on that and it's probably one of my favorite spider man stories that we did sure. to back to your other question because i I thought we uh, Accomplished a lot in that short story And obviously some people agreed Because it turned into a 13 year series you know? Yeah, I, lo- I loved
1: reading it um, And catching back up with it um, Speaking of like redesigns and, and, and stuff uh, I found this image of a proposed costume design You made for the new Spider-Man A new Spider-Man costume And it looks almost identical Or if not exactly identical To um, Miles Morales's costume In the Ultimate Universe Um do you, is, it, was that an intentional thing from them, or did they ever contact you about that? No,
0: they. I, I've never been contacted. My, I would say there's very little chance that anybody saw that. And I don't know. If, I don't know if you're thinking of the same one I am or not.
1: The V-cut uh, in the black with the red webbing.
0: Oh, I and mean, it was mostly black, wasn't it? Yeah. Because there's another one out there somebody circulating on the web. There was a design that I did that looks kind of, sort of like what they're using for Kane now, a Scarlet Spider, mm-hmm. and they're going. Yeah, I wonder if they use this. My guess is that they didn't. They didn't see those designs, or if they did, and it was in the back of their head, they're not even aware of it. Sure. Because it is just so true that you know, I people say great minds think alike, and I'm not putting myself in that category, but. People come up with ideas, you can't assume that they saw yours and everything. You know, I would love to believe that the scene in The Avengers, where you see the helicarrier take off out of the water, at first they think it's a regular aircraft carrier and it takes off out of the water. We did that in a mini series called uh, Hercules in the Heart of Chaos. We were the first ones to establish that because. It always occurred to me, that would be really cool. How do they land this thing? It doesn't have a bottom on it that looks like it could land anywhere. Sure. And I said, wait a minute, it's an aircraft carrier. It lands in the water. So we did this three-issue miniseries of Hercules that nobody ever saw, <laughs> where he, he worked, he's working with S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, maybe Mark Millar saw it and well, put I, it in the Ultimates. I, I don't... Oh, he did it in the Ultimates? Yeah. Oh, so that's where they uh, they saw it for the movie. Maybe. Maybe we, he saw it in yours. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't even say that necessarily, but I, I when I saw that in the trailer for The Avengers, I went, I wonder if somebody saw that. Till this moment, I was unaware that they did it in the Ultimates. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right.
1: Um, one of your books that I really like that I... I don't see a lot of people talking about um, online or in comic book shops and maybe because it's just old now, but um, Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man number 80, the I cover the waterfront issue yeah. mm-hmm. um, that focuses on JJJ having uh, his own story. Right. What was it like drawing a, a story from his perspective? Do you alter your tone when dealing with something like that? Or um,
0: um, Again, that, that was, as I remember, it was a Bill Manlow story, and Bill did very tight plots, so it was... Uh, you know, the, even though even working Marvel style, if the person plots tight enough, it pretty much dictates a lot of the pacing and a lot of the, the storytelling and stuff. And I, I tend to remember that one being kind of that case. I, it was just another case of me trying not to screw it up and giving him what he was asking for. Um, I know I enjoyed it. I've always loved the... Uh, the character I've always loved jo- uh, Jonah I've, I've loved the fact that as I've read the comics over the years that he became such a three dimensional character and this only you know added to that it was one of the first jobs that Tom DeFalco hired me to do because uh, he was the editor on that job and um, and you know, as much as I, it sounded like maybe I was crapping on uh, Raimi's Spider-Man, which I didn't. I didn't intend to do. It might have sounded like I was. Uh, the casting of J.K. Simmons is is, is Jonah Jameson, and the casting of the, and I don't think I can't think of her name right now, but Aunt May. The casting. Uh, of
1: Rosemary. Aunt May. Um, Rosemary White, I want to say, but I don't think that's right. Yeah,
0: that doesn't that doesn't ring a bell. Rosemary's definitely.
1: Rosemary something.
0: Yeah that those two pieces of casting were just genius i those those two characters if if nothing else in the movie for me clicked like the Fantastic Four or Steve Rogers or Thor. Those two did.
1: I can't imagine anyone else playing Jonah after J.K. Simmons. Yeah.
0: I mean, well, there was you know there was a rumor that they were going to bring him in for the reboot, and he'd be the only, he'd be the connective tissue, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, he really did make it his own. And what I loved in the first movie was that you got to see the, the blustery pain in the ass Jonah, but then he also covered for Pete when the goblin had him around the neck, you know, that kind of thing. And they even got both sides of Jonah in there that's really cool the thing I was disappointed in in the second movie is that he even though it involved his son and there was an opportunity to see him more as a human being he was totally comedy relief in the second movie
1: did you see the deleted scene wherein he dons the Spider-Man costume and jumps around the
0: office yes um, and I agreed with why they cut it out, because he <laughs> looked too good in it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did. Um, speaking of, uh, of suits, um, so when we talked to the legendary Tom DeFalco about... He's going to uh, love
0: you for this, <laughs> you realize it. Hey, he,
1: he, he gave himself that moniker. I love um, it. About he, We talked to him about the black suit. Uh, he described uh, all the vitriol that was being spewed at the costume before it came out. Um, what did you cha- think about the change in the suit, and, uh, and what was it like... Like coming out on your your issue that way and uh, and being with something so controversial, I guess.
0: Uh, well, at the time, it, w- it was less controversial and more like that nobody could believe it happened. I mean, it, back in the day, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, nobody traveled to a convention. Uh, to spit in my eye or anything right, like that. Right. You know, I mean, does that happen now? Uh, no, but on the internet it does. You know, in the dance usually, lot death threats and exactly. stuff. Exactly. That, that's just all ridiculousness that I can't even get behind. Um, actually, Tom DeFocco has a story like that. He'll tell you sometime. Huh? Uh, yeah, he was. He would. He would update references in Marvel Tales, and some complete moron, and whose name I don't remember. I believe she was. She was female, though, a columnist said, you know, actually said tongue-in-cheek in her column, you know, take a gun. If you know that Tom DeFolka is going to be at a convention in your area, take a gun and make him pay the ultimate price for rewriting Stan Lee's original Spider-Man. That's so. awful. I- yeah, his, uh, Tom's wife told him no more shows. I mean, Tom stopped doing shows for a while because some moron put that out in print. Jeez. And, uh, you yeah, it's just, know, it's just ludicrous. But... Um, no, I mean, I, all I remember is it was Beatles time for me. You know, I mean, I, I did shows. I did a show in Canada. I did a couple of shows that were just insane with the crowds and stuff because everybody thought that if they got two fifty two signed, it would suddenly be worth millions of dollars. Yeah, right. Shit. Um, <laughs> but it, it was uh, it was a crazy time. But yeah, we we were getting. I mean, it, it's it's a fact that Shooter wanted wanted to dump it. You know, I mean, we were getting so much negative mail. That uh, shooter came into a Tom and said, Bring it in in 252 and get the hell rid of it in 253. And Tom, rightfully so, argued that, uh, but he doesn't get it until like issue eight or nine of Secret Wars. So we will have gotten rid of it in Spider Man before it shows up in Secret Wars. We've got to at least keep it until the month after he gets it in Secret Wars, or the whole idea of the Secret Wars flashbacks and everything are pointless, you know. And, uh, and Shooter did give in to the logic of that. But then by the time it was time to get rid of it, everybody freaking loved it. And once it actually appeared, everybody loved it. Yeah.
1: What does it mean to you that you're a Spider-Man artist?
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. That's a neat question because I'm, I'm sure everybody lies about it. <laughs> For me, it um, it's part of this incredible... I'm going to get emotional, man. Uh, it's part of this whole dream come true of me working in comics. Because from the time I was 8 years old, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I mean, if you asked me from the time I was born, if you asked me what I wanted to I, I drew from before I can remember. But from the time I was 7 or 8 and I discovered the Spider-Man cartoon and I'd seen some Spider-Man comic books, if you asked me when I was 8 or 9 what I wanted to do, I wanted to grow up, work for Marvel Comics and draw Spider-Man. And when I was 25, that's what I was doing. It doesn't get any better that, man. You know? I I can sit with uh, fellow pros and bitch a blue streak about my status in the industry now because I'm not getting regular work from Marvel or DC and things like that. I can boo-hoo all I want. It's all horseshit because uh, who gets to do that? Who gets to, to be doing at 25 what they've always wanted to do when they were 8? You know, I mean, that's just the gift
1: Good answer. Um, so I want to thank you again for uh, being so gracious with your time, and uh, I'm curious, where can our listeners find more of you, maybe on, online, and uh, more of your
0: work? Uh, more of my work is going to be a little problematic um, because I, I do uh, Catskill Comics is is the website that I do commissions through. Um, currently what I'm working on. I'm actually working with uh, Tom DeFalco and Salva Semo on a project for overseas. Uh, we are uh, doing a uh, one-shot comic of a Bollywood superhero who is, uh, has, has a sequel coming out in November uh, for, for their holiday Diwali, which is kind of like their Christmas in November, and we're doing it for the iPhone. They get all their entertainment over there in the iPhone. They're not really, comics really haven't been introduced to much.
1: Not even the iPad, the iPhone?
0: The iPhone. There's a uh, an outfit uh, called Liquid Comics that's based over there, or has an office over there, and also an office in New York. And they're looking to open up that market to comics, and uh, it's very exciting. Uh, it's a neat character, and... It's kind of a, a sign of us as kind of ugly Americans thinking we got all the answers that we don't know about it because it hasn't been translated for our market. But we got copies uh, subtitled and everything. It's a, it's, a, it's a really neat looking, cool character. It's called Krish, K R R I S H. You can Google it and, and see it, but uh, we're going to be doing that and hopefully uh, that'll lead into more work with Liquid Comics. Um, I'm working with Brett Breeding on a series of uh, iPad apps and uh, iBooks of Superman for, for younger readers. and cool. uh, That's going to turn into some storybooks books of the, of the kind they're doing now with the DC characters. New 52 is going to start. Blending into all of that stuff It's going to be in the animation now And it's going to be taking over even that, that marketplace So I'm, I'm looking forward to that I'm working with a, an entrepreneur in California Who is producing his own anthology comic And he uh, I originally contacted Sal to a pencil and ink it, and Sal doesn't pencil anymore, so no. he suggested me. So I've been helping him design characters, and we're going to do that book together. So I'm still making money doing comics, but nothing mainstream for DC or Marvel. I was working behind the scenes at DC, and may still, depending on editors, uh, doing layouts for other uh, other pencilers uh, because of the way they're putting these books together now. It sometimes helped, it helps to have somebody lay out the job uh, to help them make their deadlines and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and this. Some people think I can tell a story visually, I guess. But uh, so I, I was doing a little bit of that behind the scenes and everything. So you know, I'm still keeping my hand in. I'm still making my living doing this, which is wonderful. Um, and uh, you know, there's that apples and oranges things too about the you know the mainstream comics these days and uh, what exactly they are and whether I mean I, I don't argue if somebody doesn't think my work is appropriate for that stuff. In fact, I almost wear it as a badge of honor to tell you the truth, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there, you know, I mean, that's that's personal taste, and this industry, from the time I got into it to now, has always been, if nothing else, incredibly subjective, you know, it's uh, uh, you can have that's why comic fans argue as passionately as, the, as they do about what's good, what's bad, what's crap, you know, what's gold uh, it, it's stunning. It's it's such a fun, because it's so visual and yet it leaves so much open for interpretation that uh, it never has ceased to fascinate me.
1: It becomes personal in between the panels. I yeah, think. Yeah,
0: it really does. I yeah. mean, it, you know, that's why when they make a movie and they cast somebody, people go, you know, I, I loved, um, and again, I'm gonna sound like an old man because I can't remember the guy's name. The guy plays the new Scotty.
1: Um, uh, Simon Pegg.
0: Simon Pegg. In an interview, you know, they asked him. They were asking everybody what they thought about Ben Affleck being cast as Batman, and he goes, "I don't know what the studio was thinking. What the devil are they thinking? A, a lantern-jawed, handsome actor as Bruce Wayne? What the hell are they thinking? You know that kind of thing." And but you know, God knows, everybody had opinions about that. You know, so uh, it, it's. It's an amazing art form. It really is. I, I've always been more of a craft guy, and I, I consider it a craft because it has to tell a story. It has to serve a function. But it definitely has become more of an art form, or more of a, of a an avenue of self-expression. You know, I don't know if I even talked about it in this interview, but it used to be you talked about finding Peter Parker's voice. Now it's doing their Peter Parker. It's you know doing the creative person uh, making his contribution to the legend of Peter Parker or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for giving me the opportunity.
1: Well, one more time uh, for our listeners, uh, where can they find your commissions again?
0: Uh, it's CatskillComics.com. One long word. Uh, uh, C-A-T-S-K-I-L-L-C-O-M-I-C-S.com. And it's uh, run by a gentleman named Scott Cress. And uh, he sells what original, what little original art I have these days, and uh, I do commissions through him.
1: Great, and we'll put a link right in the podcast here for you listeners. So thanks again, Ron, for the time.
0: It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it.
2: Amazing
1: friend. Thanks again for Ron Friends for taking the time to speak to me. I truly appreciate it. And uh, for all you listeners out there, please be on the lookout for my interview with Paul Jenkins in the near future.
2: Yeah, Dan, that was a great job. I really, really, really captured it here. It sounds like a great interview.
1: Well, uh, Mark, before we finish the show up, why don't you tell us where we can find some more of your work on the Internet?
2: You got it. Well, Dan, uh, you can find me on ChasingAmazingBlog.com. Which is my home site all through the month of September. We're doing uh, some special 50th anniversary X Men Avengers posts. Uh, so, you know, instances of Spider Man teaming up with both, and of course, my own little personal nostalgic touch associated with that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChasingASM blog. Uh, you can like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chasingamazing. And then for non Spider Man stuff, you can find me on comics should be good at gimmick or good. So, Dan, what about you?
1: You can find me uh, on Twitter at at DanGavazdan, and you can read my movie reviews, if you're so inclined, on GrindMyReels.com.
2: And you should read your movie reviews, because they're good movie reviews.
1: Thanks, Mark. That's nice of you to say.
2: (laughs) We've been doing this for now 14 episodes. I don't think I've ever said that, but he does. He writes good movie review, folks.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. I'm crying a little bit over here. I'm a little... (laughs) I'm blushing, I'm blushing.
2: You're a little of
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, you can find all of our Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.podomatic.com or find us on iTunes by searching Superior Spider Talk. Or really just Spider-Man because we come right up. And if you do, please leave a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing and we're going to be sure to read it on the air. If you have any opinions on these comics or any questions, email them to us at superiorspidertalk at gmail.com. And again, those will be read on the air in the grand old style. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash talk. Take it away, Mark.
2: Well, Dan, as uh, our good Uncle Ben and Ron friends taught us, with good podcasts, comes Superior Spider Talk.
1: Must also come Superior Spider Talk
2: with good podcasts must also come Superior Spider-Talk
1: there we go